Hi, and welcome to the Directors UK podcast. This episode comes from our member screening of Dark Waters, which was followed by a Q&A with the film's director, Todd Haynes. In conversation with fellow director Charles Sturridge, Todd shared his wisdom on topics including casting roles based on real people, providing your audience with just the right amount of factual information, and the challenges that come with making a politically charged film. We hope you enjoy the podcast. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and leave us a review. Um, so, uh, first of all, thank you for coming. Um, it's an extraordinary film. I've seen it three times. And I was just saying outside, each time I am amazed how powerfully it grips with such a complex and frankly, in, in, in conventional terms, undoable narrative, a narrative that seems to kind of not only not so much break the rules of narrative, but just not have any rules at all in what, you've, what you're dealing with as a story. So perhaps if we started there, this was a script that I think, in its initial form, came to you from someone you knew of but didn't know. Is that right? Yeah. The, the project came to me through Mark Ruffalo. This came really speedily. We were just talking about how quickly the whole endeavor really occurred. Um, the first New York Times article that's mentioned in the opening credits was 2016. A first draft of a script appeared in 2017, which Mark brought to me, offered to me by Matthew Michael Carnahan, <clears throat> and and I initially, my schedule was not going to line up with Mark's window of availability. They came, he came back to me the next year in 2018, and projects that I had been, I had to sort of prioritize and get set up uh, were underway, and, and, he, and his margin of time had shifted as well. And there was great urgency on the part of participants to try to get this movie out. They really felt this had tremendous political, cultural, social relevance. Uh, the, the, elector the election coming so quickly in the United States and much more quickly here. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, when I came back on, Matthew was no longer available, uh, the, the scre screenwriter. Yeah. And so yeah. I brought on Mario Correa uh, to the project, a writer I had never worked with before but whose sample work I was incredibly impressed with. And, and it felt like it needed that deeper investigation. And Mark certainly shared my feelings about the first draft of the script. It, it sh the first draft of the script showed that it, there was a way to tell this story and fashion it into a, an arc of some kind. But it sort of alighted some of the darker and more troubling aspects of the story. Definitely the domestic, the impact on domestic life, the kind of complexity of the power dynamics within Taft Law Firm and all of that stuff. And really, you know, the pain of the endeavor. And the thing that I think made me so interested in this, potent, the potential for it, was the great films that I just love as a film lover uh, that came out of the 1970s, uh, the sort of brooding, paranoia-riddled whistleblower films of Alan Pakula that Gordon Willis shot so beautifully. And that sort of set a new standard, I think, of a sophisticated sense of looking with some suspicion at notions of power and corruption and, um, and abuses of power. And, um, and the... the that's really what, when Mario and I went to Cincinnati and met Rob Ballot in 
in May of 2018, and Mark was there with us initially, and then he had to leave, and we went on with Rob. The stories that started to come out of Rob uh, described that kind of pain, that kind of trial that was so profound to him. So just looking at this in a calendar way for a moment, those conversations, those, if you like, deepening complexifying, if that's a word, conversations. How far ahead of actually shooting were you at that point? It all happened so, I mean, Mario's speed was so remarkable because it ultimately became a, became a page one rewrite. Right. A complete and total rewrite with no real resemblance to the, you know, once you get your hands wet, then you, yeah, you're kind you're of in, in it yeah. and you kind of need to have that liberty to start. As a matter fresh. of just curiosity, what was the start point of the original script as compared to, we start obviously with the girls diving into the lake here, we yeah, get our first There's no sense. preface like that in yeah. the original script and I, I don't remember now. Okay, fair enough. I, I you know, it, it was a, as it always is in filmmaking, it's a process of discarding each stage. And if, but if there was a single script you do uh, moment film. in that in that process where you One, suddenly thought this story is. Not different, but much more complicated one, than I'd first thought. One, one, one precise example that yeah. was in the first group, and I don't want to say negative things about it. it. He really jumped in and took, yeah, yeah. No, took no, no, the no, bull by the horns. But there was a scene in the movie where you're all of a sudden separate from Rob's experience, and you're privy to private conversations in the DuPont boardroom with all of the executives saying, what are we going to do about this guy? And all of the tension was dispelled immediately as soon as you had that freedom of movement. Like there's something about the narrative inertia in the movies that I, you know, was most inspired by. Mm -hmm. And what you see in Silkwood, mm -hmm. like Nichols' beautiful yep. film, or in The Insider, you're, the rootedness that you feel toward the characters and the sense that you are trapped inside these rooms and corporate spaces and public spaces whether it's a journalist or a lawyer, as it is in this story, where the walls feel like they're closing in on these subjects, these, these, these pursuers of these stories. And the stories are sort of being found out almost in real time. And by one person, obviously. And, I mean, and by one with person. A, with, you're with one. You're, you're with one. You're holding with, one hand, exactly. essentially. Or you're with Wood, Wood yeah. and Bernstein, but yeah. you're even, yeah. the, you're sort of split between them. their... <laughs> Uh, you know, isolation as well, which they share. Um, but yeah, so, but what's so funny is that we don't go to see All the President's Men for the outcome. We didn't even when it first came out. We knew the result of the story. You're there to watch a process unfold in a very exact, you know, uh, focused, uh, incremental process and it parallels the kind of narrative progression of, 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 of a movie. And so you're really walking through the discovery process and f finding th in the dark the shape of what the story is with the characters and that's very true for this. And of course you're, you're also in another great cinematic tradition which is the, the good man fighting the system, the man who is if not ridiculed by his colleagues, certainly not taken as a man of weight at the beginning. He's got right. the wrong car. He doesn't do the right things. Right. He only just gets in to be a partner. Yeah. And, and then there's he... resistance yes. on their part. Yeah. Like, I, I don't know if I want to take this story on. I don't know where I want, I, where I want to see where, where it leads. 
to, just to jump into something completely different, cinematography. Um, we were very briefly talking about this outside. Um, you worked many times with Ed Lackman. <clears throat> many years ago, I made two very eccentric films with Ed Lackman, who is a, a great DP, but also the most... Which films did you make, Charles? Well, they were tiny. <laughs> One of them was a music video for New Order, made roughly oh, when, you wow. were, when you were How making um, okay. Karen Carpenter, sort of 89 oh, yeah. yeah. Then a very weird French knit knitwear commercial, which he will definitely remember because it was so completely peculiar. But, but my point is that he is not only a wonderful human being and a very remarkable human being with a very unique attitude to cinematography, which is incredibly you know, demonstrated in this film, and who has, I think, a much bigger influence than he's credited for, for the way in which he is, he creates the way the unit works to some extent. I mean, that he is, he has such an extraordinary personal quality. So I just wanted to talk a little bit about your relationship with him and how that affects the way something moving as fast as this happens. Yeah. No, he, there's, <laughs> there's nobody like him, you know, and, and his, he is a true artist and a true perfectionist. And, but I think he, we, we recognize similar obsessive qualities in the other, right? And so he, and so we get to nerd out together in the preparation process. And I do my image books and collect images and yes. sort of tell. It's almost like a a poem to a nonverbal communication. The the first SOS to to Ed in the forms of these image books. Um, that collects references from photography and painting and film stills and in this case stills I took when I first visited these locations myself. Um, and we, and he digs it, you know, he relishes it and we start to talk and the movie references mean a great deal to add. Um, and, and, and then we work pretty much in the European tradition where I'm sort of setting the shots and where the camera is and what the camera's doing, and he's focusing more so on lighting. But, you know, his eye is the, you know, is an approval process, is a way of checking, touching base at every stage. And sort of, the, it's almost like you, you want to create a rule book for each new project, a series of allowable um, practices yeah. visually, rhythmically, and then things you're not going to do. You know, you want to kind of create limits for yourself that feel appropriate to what the story is and where it goes and where it doesn't go, what's off screen in the movie and what's on screen in the movie. And so that was, uh, once again, I think part of the, the process. It just all happened more quickly <laughs> than usual. So we were shooting the film. The, Mario and I went to Cincinnati to just answer your question briefly from before in may he had a script by july we were in pre-production by fall of that year in ohio and we started shooting january of this year and how many of the locations were actually the real location whether i mean the farm for example the farm was not yeah the farm was in the actual farm is in west virginia and we yeah. were ohio-based yeah. production we found a really really great location that really was, was amazing <laughs> so true to the farm yeah i spent a lot of time in in West Virginia doing research and meeting the tenants and meeting the Kigers and meeting Dr. Brooks who organized the medical monitoring um, whole strategy through the six districts in the big class action suit. 
Uh, we spent a lot of time in Taft. The centerpiece of where we actually were able to shoot of real locations was the Taft Law Offices, right. which were, I mean, I would have picked them from an aesthetic standpoint, yeah. were they not the real places, and Ed would have, and so would So that Anna was literally Beechler. the office. Those were the offices, and where we built Rob's office and the, conf the triangle conference yeah. room was just, we found a gutted floor, five floors above <laughs> the offices in the same building, looking out on the same uh, views of Cincinnati. So it, what we had, it felt like we were, had the opportunity of the actual exterior spaces and the real architecture from inside. But all those elements, the frosted the striped frosted glass partitions that we move the camera through, the little window linings along the top yeah. of the walls, the strange 45 degree corridor spaces that Rob you know, loses himself in toward the end of the movie, the irregular windows and the unique views onto Cincinnati, uh, with the architectural slabs of different periods of, of architecture interrupting sudden peaks to the Ohio River were all right there for us to use. That's, that's extraordinary. And, and also, to, I mean, obviously, to, to be in touch with the building. Let, let's, um, let's talk about maybe casting. Um, obviously, Mark Ruffler was there at the beginning. But can we talk for a moment about two things? One is about how when you're casting actors who are real people, some of them real people that you're dealing with and talking to and have interacted with, yeah. where is your casting route? In other words, are you looking for something physical? Um, obviously, we don't know what the head of Taft Law looks like and that kind of thing. Or, right. or where do you go in to find the kind of the thing that says, this is who I think this person is, or this is how I want this person played? It was such a... It was such a liberty to have the real people there, to have the real people there in the in the research part of the film, which was brief, but in in pre-production, and to have, I didn't get to meet Tom Turpin personally, but we skyped with him on that very first meeting, mm -hmm. and he has that big imposing physicality, that innate sort of authority. He's such a white shoe specimen, you know. He's like a product of that. You know the hierarchy, the sort of cl class is such a informing, uh, you know, element through the the, the 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 minute and subtle divisions of class, even within Taft, and Rob's sort of unique instability within the sort of privilege of the hierarchy within Taft, given his lack of high pedigree, his yeah. his Ohio State uh, degree, but. I just, you know, I work with Laura Rosenthal, casting director I've worked with since uh, Velvet Goldmine, um, with Susie Figgis in London, which is a co-production. Um, and we just sort of sort of back into people. You sort of start yeah. with, yeah, yeah. you sort of exclude the name actors because you know they'll take the longest to yep. approach and yep. get schedules yep. lined up with and all that kind of stuff. And, uh, but there was not real pressure from participant to cast name people, which mm -hmm. is nice. So we felt at a freedom to, to pick from, and we knew because I'd shot a movie in, in Cincinnati before my film, Carol. Yeah. And we worked with incredible local actors. And so I knew there was, was this wealth have, yeah. of local talent there that I really wanted to take full advantage of. And we had way more speaking roles in this film than yeah. Carol. Yeah. 
and we fully did in this film. But I looked at a picture of Tim Robbins and he'd put on some girths and so I'd sort of seen him laugh and he had the white <laughs> snow hair and he was just, I was just like, oh my God, it, it feels, you know, it, he bellows. It's like a tuning fork. I mean, you kind it of, is. you want you, that vibration exactly. of the note. You feel yeah. it at some root, yeah. you know, level, exactly. And similarly with Anne Hathaway, again, which was someone who, I didn't know if she would want to play this part and sort of be part of an ensemble around Mark and, but Sarah, Rob's wife, had an intensity, had an energy, had a force uh, that it sort of, it felt like it wasn't going to be overcasting to have a person with some expectations attached to um, going in and a kind of sense of almost not being content within the space she occupies, always sort of seeking, wishing that there was more influence that she might have this character. And and Annie just responded to the material, was so happy with the idea of working with Mark on a film that she felt had real meaning and relevance and was happy to, she said, to work with me. Um, and she really took it like, she was like, you know, she was like, call me Sarah on set and spent a lot of time with the real Sarah and wore Sarah's real clothes and jewelry and kept going back to the house and checking back and really making herself comfortable in, around Sarah. And Sarah felt, I think, comfortable in return. So the actors really embraced the people they were playing. And Bill Pullman made a relationship with, with Harry Ditzler. And they would constantly be on the phone with each other, checking into each other. So it was just cool that all the actors really embraced the, the fact that these real people were all there. I mean, just sort of briefly in that territory, I mean, this bluntly in the end is a middle-aged white man film. It's full of middle-aged white men. But you are very conscious of the world that the female characters face and I mean more obviously in Anne Hathaway and you know you see her the career she's given up also in the other lawyer but also frankly and then maybe I'm getting a little bit too far here but in terms of the receptionist having to deal with I mean you you I mean you bring out a theme there which is small in the kind of calligraphy of the film but at the same time feels to me that's your own signature to some extent. Well, thank you. I mean, it, it, was, it's a ba it was a balancing process, which we sort of touched on when we were just talking out there about how many elements you have to kind of keep in concert with each other, how much sort of logistical information one has to get through in a narrative, but keep an audience engaged and interested, have it feel legible. The, the thing about, I think, whistleblower films is that you you want to feel that the foundation of all the information is there, but you're never called upon as an audience member to, you know, speak to it or recite it back. That you can be moving through the human dilemma without understanding every single act of the corroboration process and all the president's men when they're talking to whoever it is. You, you understand the goals that they're, that they're facing. And that was true for this film. And with this one in particular, you kind of have to also lose Rob mm -hmm. and then refine him again as he gets buried alive by the discovery of all of the boxes of documents that he finally unearths from DuPont. And then when he comes back to us and finally presents what he has found, you feel quenched. You're ready to, to re-enter you know, to have him sort of give us that centerpiece story and have it parallel cut with sharing it with 
his wife and, and his I, boss. I think there's something also quite specific that I was going to say traditionally and slightly unfair, but it was felt that in order to tell difficult stories, you had to introduce a sentimentalizing element for us to identify with a love story or a girlfriend or whatever it is. Right. And I think what you do is allow us to see in every character not so much what's at stake for for them, but what they what they faced, and so that we un we understand why they're there, and e even if it's so to speak, the toothless children, or I mean that we get a sense of all those yeah. people, and that that's that that humanity is what holds us to the screen, rather than someone saying, "Oh, look, here's a little bit you can enjoy because I know it's quite tough." The rest of the stuff, right. I mean, so you find that in you know in in every corner of the film, and I think that's what makes it so gripping. I think what was hard, uh, the challenge was that was that Rob is several steps removed from the people in West Virginia. Mm -hmm. He is getting third-hand information about the backstory of DuPont that he that we're that we're hearing as he puts it back together for us, and and yeah. You, but you, you want to feel what's at stake and you want to feel that there's a comparable kind of cost that Wilbur's facing within his community that, that Rob is also mm -hmm. facing within his yeah. community. And while that interdependence is necessary between all these characters, these sort of unlikely people to take on what they're taking on ultimately in the end, uh, that it, they need each other, but then in a way the very process pulls them back into a sort of isolation from each other, you know, which is, which is the pain part, you know, when you, you know, it's, it's hard to tell a story. I, I feel about, uh, a righteous truth teller, you know, truth is a hard thing to convey yeah. in movies because movies are the most truthful and untruthful things at the same time as anything, you know, and when truth is handed to you too easily, or something, you know, I hear this is what happened with DuPont. I think we resist it. You need to feel that there's some pain almost involved in acquiring it. And and you, so you feel that, I hope, through what the characters are going through. And just for a second, staying with truth, um, can we just talk for about the, not the pressure exactly, but the fact of making a film when people in the room with you were it did the actual scene. I mean, that that you're presenting someone's experience or a group of people's experience that they immediately recognize and can say... Right wrong. Well, I mean, yes, sort of. Or, I, mean, the pre I mean, is there a pressure on... Not a pre I don't quite mean pressure, but how does that feel when you're so close to telling a story that qu quite a lot of people you're talking to were there at every second of what you're telling? Yeah. I mean, it was mostly Rob, who was around us the most, and, and Mark Ruffalo, who, who does such a, you know... I just want to acknowledge that I think the reason if you do feel that emotional pull through the film, it's so much due to this incredibly tempered performance that he gives. He's so fundamentally, sort of constitutionally ulterior to Rob Balot. And Mark's instinct would be to like, you know... <laughs> punch someone out, you know, when he... Because he, he gets to do once in the film. He the, kind of hits the steering wheel. Get, get out rail. of here, start a new life. That's exactly. But it's it's really not Rob's style. And Mark was like, let's have Rob on set all the time. And I was a little initially like, ooh, um, I don't know. <laughs> you know, we're going to be telling his personal story and his walls, depicting him and his wife. And, um, and then I just 
became so used to him being there and so available and so um, patient and so he could answer the tiniest specific questions like what was on the table in the mediation scene? Was there yellow pads? Did people have water or coffee? Was it paper clips and pencils or pens and you know, and that kind of stuff? You just feel like, all right, we have it down, you know, and and then things like much bigger things that feel like they're cinematic homages to some of these movies I'm talking about, all the presidents' men, the the parking garage scene. Uh, the the way the the deposition of Holiday the CEO is lit in that room, you know, you think again it's a Gordon Willis um, salute, which it was, but this was exactly how Rob described the way the room looked and the top lighting and the walls you could barely see in the conference room and the three lawyers next to the lead counsel. And, you know, it was like, wow, this really comes from real life. And, uh, and it's, you know, in that sense of more questioning what was going to happen when he put the key in the car, it was all from verbatim from Rob. Okay, I'm going to open it to questions in one second, but just one last question. Can we just talk about the sort of post-production process, the use of music and how when you're building a film that is kind of so um, hyp hypnotically connecting, I don't really mean hypnotically, I don't think, but, but I mean that it's so compulsive as a, as, as a movie, but yet has a plot that is so tricky in terms of its rise and falls. I mean, was the post-production process as fast? Was it as confident? Were there moments when act two didn't seem to hold together? Or did it... Did it the music seems very important in in some ways. In it, your, it really your, was, uh, and and that I, I owe so much to Afonso, my editor, who has has become such a reliable. I mean, I'm a I love getting into the temp selection of sure. music and how much it informs your editing process and storytelling process, um, and ultimately becomes the thing the composer you ultimately hire or bring on um, has to contend with your affection for. Um, but Fonzie just made selections that were so intuitive and so, so foundational, I think, right, to right. the film, yeah. but particularly from an emotional standpoint. That long piano piece that plays during the sequence I w was just yeah. describing, the discovery montage, is this improvisational piece that he found from a Bratel, um cue from the big short. And... And it just, I would never have thought like this sort of piano improvisation would hold that. It could be that. so tense, yes. It could when be it has, so tense. It appears to have an attention. And hold it together, but also give all kinds of space yeah. for breathing and thinking. And then he found this piece of music from David Lynch from the new Twin Peaks, this incredibly elegiac, uh, mournful uh, synthesizer cue that we use as a temp track in the final whole sequence when he finally gets the, the results of the science panel's uh, studies. And this is our victory moment in the movie, but the music was so sad and so profound, you know, and so, because it's the saddest good news in the world. Yeah. And, and yet it worked with audiences in our test screenings and our internal friends and family screenings, which I rely on sure. tremendously. They felt 
the sense of victory, but they also sense... It's victory well, without triumph, really. That's the yeah, because there's nothing... Exactly. To, you know, I mean, yeah. And there's a sense of a kind of global despair or something, a bigger sense that the world is fucked up. Let's move off global despair for a second <laughs> before we <laughs> completely fall over and go to the audience. So uh, who would like to ask a question? Thank you. Uh, brilliant. Thank you so much. I've got too many questions and I won't throw them all at you because uh, we don't have the time, I'm sure. But uh, one is, um, I, I wonder what the, how the DuPont company, did you involve them in any way? Did they communicate with you in any way? Have you heard from them since this? No, there's been no direct communication, you know, for, for reasons one can fully anticipate and expect. Uh, there was some, some sort of websites that emerged right before the film was released in the United States. The truth about dark waters from the Ohio Business Alliance. Don't believe what this, these Hollywood liberals who are lining their pockets are telling you about the story of Ohio. Actually, we're a robust economy and we provide jobs and great, you know, income and in vitality to the to the uh, state. Um, but no, I think a, a company of that size and impact, they know when the, an article like that first appeared in the New York Times, the potential of it being turned into something, a uh, documentary, which this was initially turned into, uh, The Devil We Know, that came out at the beginning of 2018, and then potentially a feature film that could reach a lot more people, that they probably have all kinds of internal corporate strategies about how to not draw more attention to it, you know? <clears throat> Yes, in the back. So it's all about whether how easy it was to get funding because of the DuPont thing. The remarkable thing is that the mandate for participant media is social justice themed films. And so, and Mark Ruffalo's past experience with them was the movie Spotlight. So everything that they do has, and even, even last year they were involved with both Roma and Green Book. So it spans in approach, and they do documentaries, but social justice themes are really what, what drives them, and that's a rare mandate in our industry, obviously. So it's, it's unique that that's what motivated the financing and the drive to get this made. Yes, in the front. Um, thanks. It's actually it's a bit of a technical question. I think in one of your answers, you said that you use the European approach where you sort where the camera is and your DOP focuses mainly on lighting. And that made me wonder what the approach normally is in America, because you phrased it as being European. Uh, I think maybe more where the DP is setting shots maybe more often, I, you know, and it varies from director to director, obviously, and how much a director is really involved in where the camera is and why. And of course, these days, steady cam and is and handheld, that sort of shaky camera and just shooting digitally so you could just don't really think about where the camera is or why, unfortunately, it too often can be the practice and then you figure out what how the film works in the cutting room. But to me, where the camera is, is it tells you everything about the point of view of the story and why it is where it is and where, why we're looking this way and not that way and the distance that we occupy or the closeness we occupy from the subject. You know, those, those issues, I feel like I haven't done my job if I haven't really thought about the relationship of camera to scene and character.
I mean, I completely agree with you, but there is a counter-European tradition when Michael Apter did his first film with Vittorio Storaro, blocked the first scene, Vittorio just said, no, Michael. <laughs> they can't go there. Right. And if it was Vittorio Storaro, as it would be, if that's no way, dude. We have to have backlight. <laughs> that's when you listen. <laughs> yes. And you go, okay. Sorry, another question. We're nearly, at, we've got, yeah, we've got time for definitely two more. Thank you very much. I want to know so much more about the case now. Thank you. Um, I wanted to ask you, the timeline is really, is really clever, cleverly used. I think having that kind of development of year on year is sometimes considered a problem. What, did you ever... Um, I thought it wasn't a problem. It worked brilliantly and it became almost a character. You thought, oh, you know, mm. you're just being pulled through time that way. Did you ever feel pressured to kind of crunch time for... Any particular reason? Well, we do. You know, we're taking all kinds of dramatic and poetic liberties in constructing it. Uh, it's just that so much more time is spent in the first two years of the storyline. And then you just want to feel that sort of inexorable, sort of inevitable sense of time ticking away and almost like chipping away at the skins and the sustenance of these people, you know. And Marlene McCarty, who's been my title designer for since my second feature, Safe. Um, who's a brilliant fine artist in her own right, but is a great graphic, thank you, great graphic designer and title designer. Um, she was like, "Let we got to use the corporate logos and fonts from DuPont's actual uh, corporate style sheets, dictates. So that's what we used. Uh, but also, the, the, almost the first thing you notice is the modesty of the first credit up in yeah. the top left-hand corner of the screen, right. and that—I mean—that's our first piece of language, basically, before we can tell what the car headlights are, and we think right. the film is positioning itself in our consciousness very, very deliberately, very much radically out of safety. Exactly. <laughs> yes, I'm sure you know. <laughs> uh, it seems like quite a short schedule that you were shooting in January, and you're in cinemas now. How many days did you shoot? Just quickly to interrupt yeah, so the process. I think it might have been 41 and 40. We did two days in the summer in July for the warm weather stuff that was mostly for the preface, the, the introduction, the, the, just, just this July, and had our first test screening like 10 days after that. And it was like, you know, just fast. Yeah. It was hard. I mean, it was tough because we were shooting in a really freezing winter yeah. uh, in Ohio. You feel it in the movie. It feels appropriate. It kind of, even though there's all kinds of seasonal changes and year changes and progressions, it, I, I, and different places and settings, I felt like I wanted to feel the links, you know, the sense that the world is linked and uh, water systems link people and like bloodstreams and the chemical and starts in the water systems and ends up in bloodstreams, you know, and that so that there would be some sense of a continuous, cold unhealthiness that you kind of feel is definitely in the color timing of the movie, but it was definitely in the real winter that we were shooting, and you see it, the snow, the snow falling through the windows. Hi, I really enjoyed the, the movie and the mood and everything. Um, actually, one film that reminded me of was Aaron Brockovich, just in terms of the theme and um, one person taking on the big corporation, and it also made me think of your earlier film Safe with Julianne Moore because I can't, I watched that so long ago, I can't remember the details, but I, I remember that she was very um, sensitive about the water and being poisoned and all these kind of things, whereas this story takes that 
for real, you know. Yeah. Um, so I'm just wondering, is that a theme you'll hope to continue, like in the future, like, you know, um, chemicals, environment, all these things? Not that I have any uh, immediate uh, expectations to to pursue and safe sort of took it into this other realm that had a lot to do with sort of you know how and why people get sick and questioning the sort of culpability issues in the reco and the recovery industry's role it was very much in the era of, of HIV and and the way a lot of new age theories were kind of telling people that they were they got sick because they didn't love themselves enough and the way how readily people go oh yeah. okay it's my fault you know and mm. that you don't look at the system and the society as as the problem, um, but Aaron Brockovich was another film shot by Ed Lockman, mm -hmm. and uh, and so. But Aaron Brockovich is a is a of course shares a lot of thematic similarities to this movie, but it has this. It's an incredibly enjoyable film. I don't know if I would say that about <laughs> Dark Waters, and it's an affirmative film in the. Uh, Aaron Brockovich, where you feel like they kind of won, mm. you know, you kind of high five at the end of the movie. Mm -hmm. um, and I was interested in kind of leaving a different. Whereas we feel like we're poisoned now. <laughs> we're poisoned. <laughs> They're sort of back in our in our hands in a way. Um, one tiny question: the cow when it jumps toward the camera, like how did you do that? <laughs> I wanted that. And the cow kind of books or whatever. Oh, cow. we just lucked out, man. We just had this trained cow. <laughs> That that just stampeded toward the camera, you know. We had how many times? We had a oh god, we had so little time. We had like one take of it. You know, you had the dog that like went around. Yeah, the mad dog yeah. You the... just get you just pray that it's going to work out because when you have trainers on set and you just always you know what it's like, right? And it's just like between weather and animals and babies and and it, it's just you're fated for failure, <laughs> and so you cross your fingers and you just hope. That you get through. Um, so we were really lucky. There was, uh, I, I, I just dig working in Cincinnati. I just have, I just love working with that Midwestern, I, I don't know, the actors and the crew people, they have this real self-possession. They don't feel intimidated by our fancy actor imports that we bring in from the coasts. And, and the actors themselves love that, you know, and they play so seamlessly from the local talent and then it's faces we don't see in movies mm. you know so you really feel that interaction and it makes the the known faces disappear more into the real setting you know so it just i just I, i'm so proud of the those actors and what they brought to the movie it makes me very happy well Todd, thank you very much for talking to directors uk tonight thank you so thank much you, you guys <laughs>